pray all this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. And like I said, if you're a kid, you are dismissed to Kid City. If uh, you slipped in after the start of the service, I just want to say my name is Jackson. I'm the student pastor here. So grateful for your presence uh, here at Calvary. Excited to see what the Lord is going to do this Sunday. Pastor David, our lead pastor, is out of town enjoying a little bit of rest. So he asked me to preach for us this morning. So super excited to open God's word. You can turn to John 14. 1 through uh, 6, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We just got back from summer camp a couple weeks ago with our students, and we had an amazing time. We had so much fun seeing the Holy Spirit move in our teenagers. I've said it before from the stage that I feel like over the young people today, there is like this cloud of darkness that rests over them. So at summer camp, we got to see the light of God cut through that, and it was amazing. We had such an amazing time. Uh, over the week, we were asking questions during sermons and church small groups. We were asking questions like this. We would say, is Jesus worth it? Or we would say, is the Christian life worth it? Is the church worth it? And so all throughout the week, we were asking these questions with our teenagers, getting them to see, is Jesus worth it to you? Is he worth your life? Because all of us, every single person, every single day, we make decisions, we do different things based on what we think is worth the most, right? I, I do this or I don't do this based on how much I value it, right? You might say, hey, uh, I'm going to get a steak at the grocery store, but maybe it's a little expensive these days, so maybe it's more worth it for my money to get the, the ground beef, right? Or maybe for you, it's, is it worth it to set aside 20 minutes a day to spend time with the Lord in prayer and to seek his face in the scriptures? Or is it worth it to wake up and go to church this morning, right? How many of you have ever asked that question, right? Can I just watch online a day? It's a little dark outside. Or we say, hey, is it worth it to come home a day or so early from my vacation to be in life group or Bible study or to be at Sunday morning church? Or you say, hey, maybe I was talking with a student. He was saying, yeah, I'm talking about some friends going to the beach, but gas is kind of expensive, so I don't know if it's worth it, right? We always ask these questions, and we try to make decisions based on what is most valuable, what is most worth our time, attention, and focus. While at summer camp, it was the last night, we were packing up, getting ready to leave. We were there for five days. It was a long camp, so much fun, but a middle school boy comes up to me, and little did I know that uh, Axe Body Spray is still very popular amongst the young guys, okay? Uh, I thought that aged out after I was a middle schooler, but the stuff stinks. It's the worst, but they all had it, right? My bed got axe-bombed. They got into my food and started spraying my food down, and then I start eating my food, and then they all start laughing. I'm like, what's so funny? And the high schoolers informed me that the middle schoolers sprayed my food with Axe Body Spray. Luckily, I'm okay, but the middle school boy comes up to me. He says, Jackson, I'm out of clothes. I have no clean clothes now. I was like, oh, no, I see where this is going. And he says, my plan is this. I'm going to take a pair of my old clothes. I'm going to hose it down with Axe Body Spray and wear it tomorrow. And I was like, please, no, anything. Don't do that. I was like, show me your suitcase. Let me see what you have in there. It turns out he had pants. He had a nice collar t-shirt. He had some khaki shorts. But to him, in his mind, he was asking this. Is it worth it to be comfortable and smell bad, or is it more worth it to be uh, uncomfortable and smell good, right? And of course, as a middle school boy, he was leaning towards, I'll be comfortable and not smell good, right? But we worked through that with him. But seriously, each one of us always asks questions like this, what is worth my time? And so if you're taking notes or you're just wanting to follow along with the sermon, here's my argument today. Here's my main point, the main idea I want to try to push home. Jesus is worth everything. Everything that you can muster up in this life, everything you can grab all your stuff together and hold on to it, Jesus is worth all of that. And you're missing out on life if you don't lay everything down at the feet 
of Jesus. That is my argument today that I hope that we will see through the scriptures. But if you want to turn to John 14 with me, we'll be in the first six verses. These are words that Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, which was the night before he was crucified. So keep that context in mind. He's with his disciples in the upper room. He's going to be crucified the next day. And Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. We were just singing about that. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And that where I am, you may be also. And you know that way, the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's just pray one more time and ask for God's favor upon us in these next few moments. Lord, please pour out your spirit on us. Speak through your word. Use me to magnify Christ. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in everything. Would you help those who have troubled hearts? Would you help us who are maybe not giving you everything? Lord, let us see that you are worthy of it all. Amen. Amen. So the first thing that we will see this morning, two points for you this morning, just two, is this, that Jesus is worth everything because of the eternal hope that he gives us. And we see that in the first four verses. So the words of Jesus come uh, to the disciples at a very perplexing time in their life, right? They're in the upper room with Jesus, and Jesus has just knelt down before them and washed their feet, which is something that a servant would do, not a master, right? So King Jesus has just washed their feet. Likely their emotions were stirring from that, but also Jesus says, hey, one of you, my 12 that I've been with for three years, one of you is going to betray me. And then Peter tries to display loyalty to Jesus, tries to show Jesus he's on his side, and Jesus just shuts him down. And then at the very end, Jesus says this. He says, I am leaving you. The disciples there would have been kind of a roller coaster of emotions, right? All these different things in the matter of just a few hours that Jesus is either doing or telling them. They would have been feeling fear and anxiety, doubt, worry, sadness, and so many other emotions. One pastor said they were like just a mixing bowl of emotions with all these different ingredients in there. Right? It says that their hearts were troubled. Think about it. You're a disciple. Jesus comes to you three years ago and says, follow me. You drop everything to follow Jesus. You leave your career, your livelihood, your family to follow Jesus. And then three years later, he says, I'm leaving you now. I'm going to die. They're like, what, what, where are you going? They had a troubled heart. Their emotions were stirring. I would say this. I think a troubled heart is the way of the modern age. Many of us here today in this room have a troubled heart. We have something we're going through that is causing us our, a stirring of our emotions, a stirring of our hearts. I saw one study, uh, it was talking to American citizens or polling them on their biggest concerns today. And out of the top few answers, they were saying uh, inflation was number one, the economy was number two, uh, gas and groceries and paying bills was three, four, and five, and that made up 63% of all the answers. It was just revolved around what's going on in our country. People are worried. How am I gonna 
paying rent. How am I going to put gas in my car, right? I'm, I'm worried about what's going on. And then you add that into the fear of, right, we seem, can't go, even go through a holiday or go to school on a weekend or a weekday without a mass shooting, it seems like. It seems like every single weekend we're talking about another tragedy. And then there's the uncertainty in foreign events and what is this country doing? What is this president thinking? Like, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. And then each one of us has our own struggles and trials that we're walking through. Each one of you are dealing with different issues, right? Different struggles, different trials. Dealing with broken relationships or the loss of a loved one or battles with mental health or sin or whatever it may be. We're all walking through hard times. And so I think as Jesus was speaking to his disciples to calm their hearts, I think Jesus is speaking to us today in 2022. I think we need these words from Jesus just as much as the disciples did. So listen to these six beautiful words. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. This is a command from Jesus, not a suggestion, a command, but I picture him saying it very gently to his disciples. If we're honest, though, we can think this is a little insensitive, right? Like when you're mad, when you're angry, the last thing you want someone to do is to say, hey, man, calm down, right? I get a little riled up sometimes on the basketball court, and the last thing I really want when I'm a little mad is someone saying, hey, you need to calm down. I don't like that, right? Or if you're sad, you're, you're crying, someone comes up to you, your parents come up to you, and they just say, hey, man, be happy. Stop crying. It's okay. Like, that doesn't work. That doesn't help. And if we're not careful, we might think Jesus is doing this. They're scared. They're anxious. And Jesus is like, oh, just don't let your hearts be troubled. But that's not what this is, right? Let's remember, this is the creator of the universe speaking to us in this moment. And he doesn't just tell them to not let their hearts be troubled, but he gives them three reasons why. Three reasons why they can be comforted and they can have faith and belief during a hard time. And the first one is this. He says, believe in me. He says this in verses 1 and 2. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Who you run to, what you run to when life gets hard is important. And Jesus is reminding his disciples to look to him, to place faith in him, to believe in him. And he says, man, if you believe in God, you believe also in me. To put faith in Jesus is to put faith in God. Jesus was not a man, but he was God in human flesh. So anytime you put faith in Jesus, you're putting your faith in God. Anytime you put your faith in God, you're putting your faith in Jesus. And he was reminding the disciples to put their faith in him, right? And, and so what happens here is it's hard for us because when we need to trust people, it's hard because we can look at their track record and see that they fail all the time, right? Like, I don't want to put my trust in this person because I know what they've done in the past. I cannot trust you. But when we approach God, we must ask the question, who is this God that we're called to put our faith in? What is his track record? What has he done before? And if we think about some of the characteristics of God, we know that the Bible says that God is everywhere, right? He is everywhere at all times. He is not just in one place, but God is so big, so great that he is everywhere at once. The Bible says that God knows everything. The, thoughts in your head, the thoughts in other people's heads. He knows all knowledge, all truth. God knows everything. It says that he is all-powerful. There is not anything that exists in creation, no demon in hell, Satan himself that is stronger or more powerful than our God. The Bible says God is immutable, meaning he never changes, right? So we say something like God is love. That means God is love all the time. He is never not love. He is never not good. He is never not kind. God is the same yesterday, yesterday, today, always. 
Jesus says this about himself in Revelation 1.8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What he means by that, I'm the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end, says the Lord God. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is saying, I existed before the, the, the start existed. Jesus exists outside of time and space, and when this world comes to an end, Jesus will still be on his throne. That is the God that we serve. This amazing God with all these attributes and characteristics that are so much greater than us. So as you hear Jesus saying, he's saying, believe in me, believe in God. He's saying, trust in me. He's calling you and he's calling me. Even though life may not be good, even though life may be hard, he's saying, put your trust in me once again. Place your faith in me once again. Look at God's track record in your life. He has not failed you. I promise you. God has never let anybody down. Read the whole Bible. Israel fails God all the time, but God is always faithful to them. He always loves them. He always comes through for them, right? God doesn't take L's. He doesn't take losses. He doesn't let his people down. God is for you. and He's good all the time. Towards the end of the service, we're going to sing a song called Same God, and we're going to be able to reflect on these lyrics. And it's basically, it points to something God did in the past and says he's still the same God today. So Jesus is calling you to put your faith in him. His track record is perfect. Amen? Amen? Jesus is good. Jesus is good. The second thing he says, he says, believe in heaven. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You see, Jesus was leaving his disciples, but he wasn't abandoning them and leaving them as orphans. He was going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. And we know this meant that he was going to be crucified, right? It's through the crucifixion, resurrection, uh, ascension of Jesus that we can go to heaven, right? So that's what Jesus was getting ready to do, to make a way for you, me, and all the disciples to join him in his Father's house, in heaven. The disciples, listen to this, this is important. The disciples didn't have to just trust the person of Jesus, but they could trust his work, right? We can look at the person of Jesus and know that he is perfectly faithful and place our trust in him, but we can also look at what he's done. And what he's done shows that he's faithful and shows that he's worthy of our trust. What he's done on the cross, how he's prepared a place for us in heaven, and how he's been faithful to you individually in your life. Don't just trust the person. Trust his work. Trust both. He's worthy. He's worthy. Jesus' work in this passage is to provide a place in heaven for all believers. Heaven gives us hope even in the hardest of circumstances. If you say, I am walking through hell right now, well, I promise you, heaven gives you hope. Heaven gives you hope. One pastor says that we should have an appetite for heaven. We should desire it. We should look forward to it. We should be excited about heaven as believers. But he says, if we have an unhealthy attachment to earthly things, we will not desire heaven like we should. If we are too focused on the things of this world, heaven will not be the hope that it should be. We will not be excited for the paradise that waits for us in heaven. Uh, the other day, my wife and I were riding around in the car, and I, I'm not a big fan of country music, but she likes country music, so we often listen to country music in the car. And this song comes on called Heaven, and the lyrics, they say this, uh, no offense to you country music fans, uh, but it says this, everybody's talking about heaven like they just can't wait to go. 
saying how it's going to be so good, so beautiful. Then he says this, lying next to you in this bed, I ain't convinced because I don't know how, I don't know how heaven could be better than this. And I thought in my head, I think I said it out loud in the car, I said, what a stupid song. Why would he write that? That's so stupid. But then as I was reflecting in this passage, preparing, I thought, that is an example of an unhealthy attachment on the things of this world, that we would begin to think that anything in this world could be better than something in heaven, right? I don't care how pretty she is, how much you love her, she is not better than heaven. Glory awaits the believer in heaven. There is nothing in this life that is better. Nothing that you can experience in this life that is better than the glory that awaits for us in heaven. But when we're too focused on the things of this life, we forget what heaven will be and what it is now. Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, he notes that for centuries, Christians would look to heaven in the face of death, in the face of sorrow, and they would have hope, they would have joy because of the hope of heaven. In the tombs of Christian martyrs, those who died for their faith, they would say things like, in Christ, Alexander is not dead, but he lives. They didn't care about death because they knew when you die, you go on to live in paradise. They would say things like the one who lives with God. No talk about death. They would say he was taken up to his eternal home. Christians have always, throughout time, looked at death and sorrow differently because we know when we breathe our last breath in this life, we enter into heaven. We are with the Father in his house. Many of the disciples that Jesus was talking to, they were going to die the deaths of a martyr. They were going to be crucified. Some of them hung upside down and crucified on a cross. I think it was John who was boiled alive and then sent to prison. They were going to die these awful deaths, but they could do so with confidence because they knew Jesus had gone to prepare a place for them. He had given his life for them. But hear me. When we talk about heaven, we often get into the, oh, there's going to be streets of gold. The architect is going to be so amazing, like the buildings, all this, the mansions. Talk about, oh, is, is my dog going to be there? Which I think they will be. I don't know about cats, but I think dogs will be there. No offense, no offense, no offense. Uh, <laughs> but we talk about all these things, but what makes heaven so beautiful, what makes heaven so glorious, what makes heaven such a source of hope is not all those things, but it's the fact that we will be with our Savior. We will be with the Father. We'll be in his presence. The, heaven says, uh, or the Bible says that heaven, the light in heaven, is just the glory of Jesus radiating. That's what makes heaven such a source of hope, that we will finally be with our Savior. Amen? And so as we look towards uh, sorrow, towards death, towards the hard things in life, we can remember that there is a place for us in heaven if you are a child of God. Spurgeon says this, when you die, you will not be plunged into the great unknown, but he says this, you will be with Christ. And that is heaven, with Christ forever and ever. Third, he says this, believe in the return of Jesus. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Quickly, I'll just say a few things about the return of Jesus. Jesus has promised that he will come back and redeem his people and take them to heaven. God has not left us as orphans here. He will return and bring his bride to him. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And listen to this, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
Amen? Jesus is coming back one day, and he will take his bride with, us, with him. He will take the saints of God to heaven with him. He is preparing a place for you, and he is coming back. He is coming back. We can trust him, place our faith in him. The return of Jesus gives us hope. Take comforts in the word of Jesus, comfort in the word of Jesus because of the work of Jesus, okay? We can be comforted by all of this because of what Jesus has done, right? He's not just talking a big talk. He's walked the walk. He's done the work. He's prepared a place for us. Say this, Jesus is worth everything to you, everything that you have. One, because he's the only source of true hope in this life. You cannot get in this world what you get with Jesus. There is no hope in this world apart from Jesus. I mean, I look at what's going on. I don't know where you find hope, where you find the happy side of things in our world today without Jesus. Because of Jesus, because we believe in him, because we believe in heaven, because we believe in his return, we can have hope. And I would say Jesus is worth it just based on that, just based on that. But I've got a second thing for you. Jesus is worth everything because he is eternal life. He is eternal life. We see this in the last two verses. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me story time. A couple months ago, my wife and I went out on a walk, uh, trying to get some exercise, but we didn't check the weather before we went out on the walk, and it turns out it was about to start raining. So we're halfway through our walk, starts raining, so we run back to the house, run in with the dog, we get up to the front door, I go to unlock the front door, open the front door, and it's locked. I'm like, Jess, you got the keys? And she's like, no, you have the keys. I'm like, I don't have the keys. We're locked out. So we walk around to the back of the house, hoping that the back door is unlocked, and we're good people. We locked the back door so we couldn't get in. And so we're sitting there in the rain on our back porch saying, how do we get into this house? No keys, no cell phone. What do we do? So I begin to walk around the house and push on the windows, hoping that I left one unlocked. I'm getting up on chairs to try to get into the high windows. They're all locked, right? We did a good job. Nobody was getting into this house. So I begin to go through in my mind all the ways that I can get into the house. I say, man, I could break a window, and then I could, like, reach my hand in, or I could try to kick the door in, right? And I was like, I probably can't do that. Uh, Probably a lot easier, or it looks a lot easier than it actually is. I was like, oh, I could take maybe a rock and break the doorknob and try to replace the doorknob, because we're renting, right? So I was like, anything I have to do, I have to fix without our, our landlord knowing, right? So I'm going through all these different ways, and I'm like, how do we get into this house? It's raining, no phones. We're like, maybe we could call, uh get the phone from our neighbor, call one of our parents, and they could call a locksmith or something like that. We were like going through all the different options. And then I remembered, when I was a teenager, me and my friends would take a little gift card, credit card, and we would go to this back closet that has all the balls in the gym, and we would just slide the credit card in there, open up the door, and we could get in there. I said, Jesse, I think the car's unlocked. I go in, it's unlocked, my wallet's in there. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we locked the house, but not the car with the wallet. I get an old uh, gift card out, I go to the back door, and I said, Jesse, I'm gonna give it a try. Boom, opens up. I felt cool, right? Like MacGyver felt cool. I was like, we're in, right? It's all heaven's glory opened up right there, right? We were in. Why do I say that? I say all that to say this. The Father's house is not like that. There is only one way into his house. Many ways into my house, right? Break a window, slide through uh, the back door, whatever. The Father's house, there is only one way, and it is Jesus. There's only one key to the gates of heaven, and that is Jesus and what he's done on the cross. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't find another religion to get through heaven. It's only through Jesus that you and I can enter into the gates of heaven. 
Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. It's kind of funny. After following Jesus for three years, three years, and they still don't understand what his mission was. You can read John 13, John 14. Disciples are asking Jesus all these different questions, and it shows they still don't understand. He's about to be crucified tomorrow, and they still don't understand what he came to do. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus says he is the way, he is proclaiming that he is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to heaven. I tell my students all the time, Jesus doesn't say he is a way. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm an option to get into heaven. He says, I am the way. (laughs) That, That doesn't leave the door open for another way. He says, I am the only way to the Father. How is Jesus the way? Through the gospel, through his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension on the from this earth, right? Through what he did on the cross, dying in your place and my place for our sins, we can enter into heaven. That is the only way, through the payment that Jesus made on the cross. Jesus says, I am the truth. He proclaims that he is truth. John 1, 1 tells us that Jesus is the incarnate word of God, that the word became flesh. Jesus is the source of all truth, and in everything that Jesus says, anything that Jesus says is truth. Jesus reveals to us who the Father is and how we can get to him. In our world today, some would argue that truth is relative, right? They would argue that you can't fully know truth. There is no absolute truth. No one could know truth. But the fact is, you can know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know truth, especially about eternal life. Amen? He says, I am the life. Jesus, reiterating what he says in the way, says, I am the only way to eternal life. Do you want to live forever in heaven? It is through what Jesus did on the cross. It's through a saving relationship with him. That's the only way that you enter into heaven, through what Jesus did on the cross and your belief in that. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples. Jesus is about to be crucified the next day. So they needed this reminder that Jesus' body was going to hang lifeless on the cross. He was going to be dead. Islam would say, no, he wasn't dead. He was just, you know, he was almost to the point, or maybe he had a substitute. No, Jesus died on the cross, and although he would hang there lifeless, the disciples needed to be reminded that life was found in him, in what he was doing. Eternal life is found in Jesus. We live in a place and time and society where we don't like these exclusive claims when it comes to religion. You might hear people say, man, you really think your way is the only way? Man, how closed-minded, man, how prideful. You really think that anyone who doesn't believe what you believe is gonna go to hell? Like there's so many other religions, man, aren't they all just kind of going to the same place? That's not what Jesus claims here, and if you look at all the other major world religions, that's not what they claim either. Islam denies Christianity, Judaism denies Christianity, Judaism denies Islam, Islam, they, <laughs> no one, no one in any of these religions thinks that all of them lead to heaven. And Jesus makes a claim here that he is the only way to heaven. He makes an exclusive claim. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Bible says that we are all spiritually dead. It describes this as dead in our sins, and it says the only way to be brought back to life is through Jesus. The only way to live forever, live forever in heaven is a relationship with Jesus, is what he did on the cross for you. Christians have been giving their life for over 2,000 years to share this message. 2,000 years. They've been dying, they've been persecuted to share this message. They faced death in the face with joy because they knew this was true. 
you look throughout church history, people burnt on a stake. And in the face of all that, they say, I'd rather live with Christ than deny my Savior. In Acts 4.21, it says, there is no salvation or there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ is the only way to salvation. But Christians in America don't share the gospel because we get nervous. Christians in America don't share the gospel because we're afraid it might get awkward. They might think about me differently. Or we don't share the gospel because what if they ask a question that I don't have the answer to? Or if we're honest, we just say, I don't really know the message that well, or I just don't really care to share it. None. None of those reasons honor Christ. And I would say, if you're a Christian, we're all probably at least guilty of one of them. I know I am. We're all guilty of this. And I, I want to challenge us in this moment for just a second. If you've been a member of Calvary for some time now, or you've been coming to church for some time, and you are a child of God, I want to challenge you. Discipleship, is a part of that is challenge, right? Part of loving someone is challenging them. So I want to challenge us, challenge myself. Just a few questions let me ask you this, how many people have joined our church in the last year as a result of you sharing the gospel with them and the spirit of God saving them? How many people have you built a relationship with, gone out to lunch with, uh, loved them, cared about them, and then shared the gospel with them, and now they're here today and they'll be in heaven forever because you shared the gospel with them and the spirit of God saved them? How many people are here? I say very few, myself included. When was the last time you shared with someone that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? Not did you invite them to church, because church inviting is awesome, amazing, you should do it, but that does not replace personal evangelism. The church is supposed to go out and tell. And if we're only come and see, hey, come to church, come see what my pastor's gonna say. No, you should be going out and sharing. I should be going out and sharing. Let me ask us this, as a church, do we have a zeal for sharing the gospel with the world around us? Do we have a zeal for sharing the gospel with the world around us? Or let me ask it this way, are we passionate about the gospel? That Jesus is the only way to the Father? Do we get excited about that? Are we passionate about this? I, I know myself, I can talk about the NBA, I can talk about the latest episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi for hours. How long can I talk about what my Savior has done for me? See, there's one name that should always be on our lips, and that's the name of Jesus, and there's one message that we should always share, and that's the gospel. But I would imagine if you're like me, that's not often the case. I see Christians gripe and complain all the time about how broken our world is, how evil it is, and I agree, it's broken, it's evil, we see so many bad things, but how hypocritical is it for us to complain about what the world is doing and not share the remedy for the brokenness. Because we have it. So we can go to social media and we can say, man, this world's so messed up, people are so crazy. But how hypocritical for us not to take the life-giving message that fixes the brokenness in our world and not share it. How selfish of us to have the keys to the kingdom of God and not share it with the people around us. It was, it was Spurgeon, I read this in one of his books and it stuck with me since school. Maybe he said, if someone's going to go to hell, they should have to climb over us. We should be holding on to their knees, doing everything we can to stop them from going to hell, sharing the gospel all the time, 
often we say, I don't want to be awkward. I don't want them to think I'm weird or trying to convert them, right? Like, I'm not trying to force my message on you. But if we're honest, as a church, we should be sharing this message out of love for a dying and broken world. And here's what I would call, if you're a Christian church member here for a long time, here's what I would call us to do, myself included, no better than you. We should repent of our lack of gospel urgency. Because eternity is forever. Eternity is forever. And Jesus has made a way for people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to share the gospel, to receive the gospel, to be saved. And yet often we don't share the message. The early church exploded with growth. It said that people were added to their gathering every single day because the Christians were coming in, they were meeting together, then they were going out and they were telling people about the gospel. Good catch. This is what we should do. This is who we should be. A go and tell people. Say, yes, come and see. Come and see the youth group. Come and see the college ministry. Come and see the, the new stage or the worship or the preaching. Come and see all this. But we must go and tell. Must go and tell. And in closing, I just want to leave us with a few things. A few things in closing. First is this. I've said it multiple times. Trust the words of Jesus in this passage because of the work of Jesus. This passage is meant to be an encouragement to us. Jesus said it to people who were dealing with anxiety, stress, and fear. They were worried. They were scared. And I would just say, if you have a troubled heart this morning, if you were walking through something difficult, something that you would say, I would remove this from my life if I could, to trust the words of Jesus. Some pastors have said this passage is a delight to a burdened soul. It can uplift a weary soul because it's King Jesus speaking to us saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Look at what I've done for you. He's saying, believe in me. Believe in heaven. Believe in the return of Jesus. So if you're going through a hard time today, I would just call on you to look to Jesus. Call out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Because faith is hard. Faith should be easy with how amazing God is, how big God is, how incredible he is. It should be no, like piece of cake to place our faith in him, but it's not. It's not. We get in a stressful situation, our heart starts racing, hands start sweating, we get nervous, scared. It was Spurgeon again that said, faith brings us back into the realm of common sense because fear and anxiety, we begin to think that, man, this problem is bigger than my God. This valley that I'm walking through, God can't help me here. But faith would say, no, I know this is hard. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I know my God is faithful and he walks with me. He loves me. He's holding me in his hand. And so hear the words of Jesus calling out to you. Don't let your heart be troubled. He's speaking to you today. I'll say the second thing I don't want us to miss is this. Remember that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Our world is broken. Broken. So much destruction, so much despair, so many broken hearts, lies, backstabbing, death, murder. It's broken. Nobody would look at our world and say, it's perfect. Nobody. But here's the thing the Bible would say. It would say, yes, our world is broken, but the same brokenness that we see in the world is also in our own hearts. Because we also hurt people. We also lie. 
we also turn our back on God and don't always do what we're supposed to. If you're honest, if you're like me, you're messed up, you're broken. And the Bible is clear, it would call that sin. And the Bible would say that there is a punishment for sin and it is death. And I know that sounds bleak, that sounds kind of dark. I saw a pastor talking about this though on Twitter. He said, you know what, I'm thankful for God's return, that he's gonna judge sin because if he wasn't gonna judge sin, there's a lot of just evil things that people would get away with. And so a way we, we delight that yes, everybody will give an account for their sin, but here's the thing, here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. It says that God doesn't desire for you to receive that punishment. It says that he desires that every soul would be saved. God sent his son Jesus out of love to die in our place, to take our punishment. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took your punishment. That should have been you, that should have been me, but instead it was Jesus. And I hope we've made it clear that there's only one way to salvation. Here's a list of things that does not save you. If you say, let, let me ask you this question. Before this service, if I was to ask you, hey, how do you get to heaven? What would your answer have been? What would you have said? These are wrong answers. I try my best to do good and love God. That's, I, ju I just try my best. That does not save you. I'm a, I'm a good person, so I think God would let me in. The Bible would say, no, you're not. If you think you're a good person, one day you will stand before Jesus and find out you are not good. You might do good things, but at the heart of your hearts, you're not good. You say, man, I, I, I do my best to go to church every Sunday. Another country music song, the guy was saying, I, I, I go to church on Sunday, so I don't go to hell. That does not save you. Church attendance, church involvement does not save you. You say, I was, I was baptized and I read my Bible every day. That's why I'd go to heaven. No, that doesn't save you. You say, man, if you just follow any religion and you try to be sincere, that will save you. The Bible would say, no, it's not. No, it doesn't. Only Jesus. Only Jesus and what he's done on the cross. He's the only thing that can save you. And I would call on you if you've never placed your faith in Jesus. Today could be your day that you receive salvation. That you secure your place in heaven to be with Jesus forever. If you're feeling like that's you, all you have to do is this. Because Jesus has done the work for you. He saved you. He made the payment. If you would just admit to God that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself, just a simple prayer. You could just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. And then if you would just believe, believe that Jesus is the son of God, believe that he died on the cross to save you from your sins and believe that he rose again. So you say, God, I believe, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he died for me on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe that he rose again. I believe God. Then if you would confess, if you would confess that Jesus is Lord over your life, call upon his name. Say, God, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe he's the only way. I give my life to him today. If you would just admit, believe, and confess this morning, you could walk in to eternal life. The Bible says that there's a party in heaven. Angels celebrate anytime when someone calls on the name of Jesus to be saved. Third, I would say this, Jesus is worth everything that you have. Your hopes, your dreams, your future plans, your talents, your money, your desires, your spiritual gifts, your pain, your sorrow, your burdens. Jesus is worth it. He's worth everything. 
So you can take everything, make a list of everything you have in life, good, bad, and ugly. You can give it all over to Jesus. You can drop it at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, this is yours. This is your life, not my life. I would imagine if you're like me, you might need to call out to Jesus today as a Christian and say, God, I'm sorry. I've been prideful. I've been living life for me. I've been holding things back because that's what we do. We say, hey, Jesus, you take this, take this, and I'll keep this. Here's a Sunday every now and again. Here's a, a tithe check. Here's a, a prayer. Here, I, I read my Bible today. You take this, but all this is mine. But Jesus is so great, so glorious. He is worth it all. So instead of saying, here's a little bit, we say, Jesus, here's it all. Do whatever you want with it. My life is yours. Everything I have is yours. And so here's what I would do as we come to a close. Here's what I would call you to do. Because we can often, we can hear God's word preached. We can hear a song. We stay in our seats. Then we walk out of the door. And just after a few hours, we begin to forget what the spirit of God was speaking to us. And I believe that the Spirit of God has been speaking to you. Not me, but the Spirit of God. And so as we get ready to worship, here's what I would call you to do. Uh, in, in Ephesians 3, Paul says that he bows his knee before the Father. And what it shows, what it signifies is an act of humility. Whenever we get on our knees and pray to the Lord, we bow before him. What we are basically saying is, Lord, you have all the answers. You have everything I need. I can't do it on my own. God, I need you. The Bible would talk about laying face down, floor, uh, face on the floor, just crying out to God. And so what I would say is, could we do that in the next few moments as the church? Could we cry out to the Lord? If you're able, as we stand, could you... Get on your knees, and I speak as someone who has a pregnant wife, you might not be able to. That's okay. Maybe it's open hands. Maybe it's coming down to the altar and kneeling and saying, God, I need you. Maybe you're walking through a trial, through a situation, and you just want to spend time with the Lord and prayer. Maybe you've realized you've lived a prideful life, or maybe you realize you haven't shared the gospel in years, and it's time to repent of that. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus, and for the first time you want to do that. And you would just admit, believe, and confess. So as we get ready to worship, I hope to see so many of us fall to our knees and cry out to the Lord. And I'll lead the way, not as a look at me, but because I need to. I haven't shared the gospel outside of the walls in the church for too long. So let us, in these next few moments, kneel before the Lord, arms open before the Lord, and cry out to Him. As I pray, you can rise to your feet or go to your knees. You can join me up here at the front. Let's seek the face of the Lord. God, how desperately we need you.